What's up, Chris? This is Kyle. I am tuning in from the big island of Hawaii, where I'm currently on an archery hunt. As I look behind me, I see the vast expanse of a big blue ocean, and I am surrounded by charcoal black lava rock. Just want to say, keep doing the podcasts. We all get a tremendous amount of value out of them, and I especially love the one that you recently did with Alexandra Snow. Much love, over and out from the Big Island. Radio Mano Papachango. About five minutes ago, I saw a lynx stalk right across the yard out here. There's some bird feeders, and uh, he or she was going for birds or squirrels or something that was down there. <clears throat> Very interesting to look up from your computer screen and see a large predator moving purposefully and with that sort of urgent, like, I don't know how to describe, you, you know, the way a cat moves when it's low and focused and just, yeah, that was cool. Anyway, if you recognize that voice, that was Kyle Tierman, host of the uh, very imaginatively titled Kyle Tierman Show, which I recommend on uh, this podcast quite a bit. He's he's great. He uh, is back from Hawaii now, and uh, he shot two pigs, I believe, with his bow and arrow. And I'm uh, going up to Santa Cruz. Cassie and I are going up next week, I believe, to have a barbecue, a wild pig barbecue or something that's going on up there. That'll be fun. I think uh, there are going to be some interesting people at this party. Um, Bruce Damer is going to be there. Jim Fadiman. Uh, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know who both of those people are. And um, yeah, really interesting crowd up there in Santa Cruz. So that's next week. Uh, what's been going on? This episode, uh, long awaited, is with Peter Gorman. He is, uh, you know, how do you describe Peter Gorman? He's a a legend uh, among Amazonian explorers and and people who know about psychedelics. He's an award winning journalist. Um, he's based in Texas. He's been the Texas Print Journalist of the Year a couple of times. He's won all sorts of awards. He was the editor of High Times Magazine for uh, 12 years, I think, 86 to 98. Um, he is, the, I think, one of the first people, maybe the first person, to write about ayahuasca in a popular press as opposed to scholarly stuff. He's got several books. His latest book is called Sapo in My Soul, if you're into... This world of uh, psychedelic medicines, you'll know that Sapo is a psychedelic substance that is extracted from the skin of frogs. Um, yeah, and I think uh, Peter Gorman is responsible for bringing that out of the jungle into the world. It's something I have not experienced, but uh, a lot of people I know have uh, pretty intense experience from what I've heard. Anyway, you can uh, learn more about Peter Gorman at his website, which is pgorman.com. He's got some books on sale there and uh, sapo sticks and uh, 
all sorts of uh, things he's brought back from the jungle and, and lots of articles and photographs and stuff. He's a character. Uh, Cassie and I dropped by his place in Texas when we were driving through there. And, um, you know, uh, some of these podcasts, as you know, the, the episodes, I like them to be organic, um, but I do try to guide the conversation toward this or that. In this case, it became clear quite early on that Peter was going to talk about whatever the hell he wanted to talk about. And to be honest with you, that's fine with me. <laughs> so, so I just let him run, you know, uh, there, there's no putting a leash on this guy. He's a free spirit. As you'll hear, he's been living a life that's full of, um, challenges and, and there've been disappointments, but there have also been incredibly intense and beautiful moments um, yeah, it's been a, a life of adventure. He's, he contracted a flesh eating virus in Peru when he slipped and fell in a market on a bunch of fish that had been lying in the sun for a few days. And so he's got some, um, problems with his leg. He seems to be getting better though. Um, and, uh, I think he leads trips down into the Amazon occasionally. He's, he's a character you'll, you'll hear. You'll hear he's smoking cigarettes and drinking wine, and we're laughing a lot. There's a lot of uh, we're sitting in his office where all these amazing photographs. Cassie took shots of uh, a few shots of his office. I'll put some of those up on the website, but you can see more at his website as well. Again, that's pgorman.com. All right, so things to tell you about uh, the tangentially reading books are selling like hotcakes. Thank you for that. I guess people like the book. You can get it on Amazon, or and that's the grayscale version, or if you would like the full color version and you live in the U.S., please, U.S. only, you can order that at uh, my website, thatchrisryan.com. Mom will send you a copy, full color. Now, another announcement, and this is a kind of a, <clears throat> a little bit weird. I ordered a bunch of stickers because people have been asking me for stickers. And I found some companies that'll print up stickers. You can just sort of design them on, on the website. So I ordered some and people are already, I, I put them up on the webpage a couple days ago and people are starting to order them. The problem is the webpage on Squarespace, they don't give you the option of setting different shipping prices for different products. So I set the shipping price for the t-shirts and the books for like, I don't know, five bucks or six bucks or something, because that's about what it costs to ship a book or a t-shirt in the U.S. And then Canada is different and, and outside of North America is a higher price. So I tried to make that more or less what you guys are paying. We're not trying to rip you off on, on anything, but certainly not on the shipping. Um, the problem now is that the stickers, if you just order some stickers, it's charging you the same shipping as if you had ordered a book or T-shirts, which is bullshit. Um, so what I've been doing, and, and I can't, I wrote to Squarespace and they're like, no, we don't do that. We don't offer that, which seems stupid. I mean, you've got an online store, you're going to have different things that are different shipping rates. So what they want me to do is set it all based on weight which I guess I, I'm, I'm going to have to go in and do that. What That's going to be a pain in the ass and take time. And I don't know how to do it. So in the meantime, until I get that worked out, I'll put the stickers for sale on the website. And what I'll do is if you order them, when you place an order, it asks for your email address. So I have been just refunding all but like two bucks. Um to whomever orders them. So if you order it and it's like, let's say it's 
10 bucks worth of stickers and then it charges you six bucks shipping, then I'll send, I'll just PayPal you four bucks. So you're only paying two bucks for shipping, in other words, if, if all you order is stickers. And even if you order stickers and books and shirts or whatever, then I'll make sure you're not paying anything for the shipping on the stickers. Until I work that out, that's just how we'll have to do it. I'll reimburse you through PayPal. Uh, yeah, that's it. What else do I have to say? That's, that's it about the stickers. I've got little notes here of things to say. Some recommendations of things to check out if you have time and interest. I've been watching um, Atlanta. I watched the first season when it came out last year and the second season has just ended. I haven't seen the second season yet. Cassie and I watched the first episode of season two and she liked it so much she wanted to go back and watch season one. And I was like, yeah, I've already seen that, so I'll just do something else while you watch it. But I watched the first episode and I was rehooked. It's so good. It's really, really well done. Um, so if you haven't seen Atlanta, highly recommended. Go back and begin with season one. Um, and also uh, Donald Glover, I think his name is, who's the creator, star, writer. You know, he does it's his whole thing. Um, he just came out. He's also a rapper uh, called Childish Gambino, I think, or something like that. Um, he just came out with a video that premiered on Saturday Night Live a week or two ago. Uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's called This Is America. It's incredible. It is really incredible. It's a it's a commentary on American culture that's as strong and poignant and artful and disturbing and bizarrely beautiful as anything I've seen. Highly recommended. It's on YouTube. This is America. Childish Gambino. Uh, what else? Netflix. Uh, we watched uh, a documentary called First Contact. That was interesting about a lot of the people that Peter Gorman has had some uh, contact with or similar people, people related to them in any case. Uh, it's about the sort of last uncontacted tribes in the Amazon and how they're, some of them are coming out now because loggers and gold diggers and various nefarious characters are basically hunting them down and killing them. Um, so they're being driven from the last pockets of the world where they've been allowed to exist in obscurity. Anyway, that's a very interesting uh, documentary. And another Netflix doc documentary we watched recently is called Happy. Also very interesting about the quest, the pursuit of happiness. And the last thing I'm going to recommend to you, again on YouTube, is a series of videos by a guy named, um, I think it's Rick Beato, B-E-A-T-O. It's called What Makes This Song Great. So this guy's an amazing um, musician. And what he does is he just picks a song and he spends about 20 minutes taking it apart and showing you 
how incredible it is. Now, I have to admit, I'm not a musician. A lot of what he says goes right over my head. You know, he's talking about chord changes and, you know, this is a F sharp major with a third, you know, suspended third. And like, I don't even know what that means. He could be speaking Czech for all I know. Um, but it still enriches my experience of the song because he'll he'll show you how, you know, this 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 they tape this and then they slow down the tape and that's why it sounds a little off key. Or, you know, they use this the heart car horns and then they they distorted them through this box and he shows you how this stuff is done and how rich these songs are. It's really incredible. Uh, I highly recommend the first one I saw was about uh, Steely Dan's Kid Charlemagne fantastic a song i've loved for years he did another one on um tom petty we i won't back down that tune and uh, what was the one i listened to last night there's a really good one oh red hot chili peppers give it away give it away give it away give it away now yeah if you like music and you want to sort of get a deeper understanding that's uh highly recommended all right what else can i say people have been asking me to comment on this incel thing. Um, you know, I, I kind of go back and forth on that, or, or, or let me say I, I understand different, I understand it from different perspectives. Of course, this has to be framed in the notion, the, the sort of strongly held understanding that nothing excuses killing people randomly in the streets because you're pissed off at life. That's not the way to deal with things. Um, but I understand the rage. I understand where it comes from. I understand how painful it can be to be isolated. And I think for those of you who don't know, incel refers to involuntary celibate. And, um, it's sort of a, a moniker that's being applied to particularly young men who are unable to connect with women and they express this rage by killing people like this guy did recently in Toronto and there was a guy in Santa Barbara who did it a few years ago. And so it's become one of these online shadowy movements of, of young men who are um, sort of vicious and, and angry about the way the world is treating them. And look, I understand it. I, when I was in my twenties, I went for long stretches with no women in my life. And, um, uh, they sure seemed long. Uh, in my case, it was primarily because I was traveling and, you know, I've never been a guy who just sort of meets a woman and she wants to sleep with me because of how great looking I am. <laughs> that's, that's never been my thing. So, uh, the way I connected with women involved being in a place for a while and getting to know people and, you know, having a chance to have conversations. Like I, I've never met a woman in a dance club or something and gone home with her. It just doesn't happen. Cause like, I can't, there's no way to have a conversation. So, you know, there are lots of guys better looking than me. So she's going to pick one of them if, if it's all visual. Um, and my point is 
I know I have an understanding of how painful that can be. Even if in my case, you know, I could tell myself it was my own choice and it was a decision I was making still, it fucking sucks. I think the mistake we make is, as men, is in thinking that the pain is about sex. And it isn't. It's, you know, getting laid doesn't solve the problem because the problem is a lack of intimacy and contact and touch and having someone who knows you and loves you in your life. And it's very easy to think that that's about sex, but it isn't. That's Sex is just sort of a symbol of it and a, a biological correlate. Um, but I think that what these people are really suffering over is the absence of love. And there are a lot of women who are suffering from this as well. There are a lot of old people suffering from it. There are more people who feel socially isolated now uh, as a percentage of the population than ever in the existence of our species. We're very, very lonely. I've, you know, Johan Hari talks about that in Lost Connections. We are a deeply, fundamentally social species, and yet more of us are living our lives alone than ever before. And I know, oh yeah, you've got, you know, a thousand Facebook friends, but none of them rub your back when you're feeling sick or give you a foot massage while you're watching a movie. And that's what really matters. So I understand the rage, but if anyone's listening to me and feeling that rage and that, that helplessness, I would just encourage you to understand that it is not women's fault. It's not the fault of any individuals of, of, I guess they call them normals or Chad and Nancy's or whatever the word, I forget the, the names for people who are functional. And so they're very angry at those people, but it's not their fault. And, and the oldest mistake that we make is in attacking the wrong people. And we do that so much. The whole divide and conquer thing works so well on us. It certainly is not women's fault. Women are suffering just as much, but more quietly. In most cases, they're not running around, you know, women's rage turns inward as depression, whereas men's rage tends to turn outward as violence, but it's still there. It still hurts the same. Um, so I, I guess I, my take on it is just that I hope that people will, young men will forgive themselves and certainly not blame women. And because the more anger you feel toward women, the more resentment you feel, the less like, likely it is that anyone's going to want to hang out with you and, and ultimately solve the problem that's at the root of all this. And one of the things that I hear that's an expression of that kind of disdain that is so ubiquitous and so... Um, I mean, people I I know and respect, I hear them do this, referring to a woman as a number. I guess she's a seven, you know, or, or even, you know, like, oh, baby, you're a nine. Like somebody's supposed to feel complimented that you're assigning a number, one number to a 
complex, nuanced human being. Guys, please don't do that. That's uh, any woman who hears you do that is going to lose respect for you. If it's a woman who has respect for herself. So I guess the, the way out of this mess is just to try to respect each other and forgive each other and ourselves and uh, recognize that the real problem is that we live in a pathological world. We live in a society that is not in alignment with our needs and our interests and which is designed to make us unhappy because the only way to get us to play the fucking game is to take away all the free happiness and then make us work so we can buy the fake fucking happiness. That's the way it all works. It's not your neighbor's fault. It's not your boss's fault. It's not your mother's fault. It's not your fault. But that's the way it is. We're fish in a poison river and we're all trying to figure out how to swim to health and safety the problem is we're in this poison river so please don't blame the other fish all right that's enough of my bullshit i am going to play you out with a song called michelle's waltz it's by leo DeSanto, and uh, he's uh, a guy who listens to the podcast sent me a cd uh, the CD's called The Moon, Comma, A Silver Dime. I think I've played, I think I played another song by him earlier in another episode. This is the part of the podcast where I do not try to sell you fucking anything. Not a thing. I'm not even going to try to sell you. I'm not going to try to get you to pay for the concept of a commercial free podcast. I'm just going to shut the fuck up and introduce you to Mr. Peter Gorman. Thanks for listening. Springtime in New York City And hawks are nesting up high They see it all from their places in heaven All matters of distance beneath the big sky Winter makes lonely hearts shiver They wait to come back like the ghosts of the leaves Still there are cold winds and Amtrak train whistles And fat guys with pistols to bring melodies If I'm off to the city, it's greenbacks to spend But if I'm off dreaming, it's free Life were a long song, nobody'd want to sing along But if I'd go waltzing, would you waltz with me? People spend their whole lives waiting And they don't know what they wait But they still wait for the grass to stop growing Or the wind to stop blowing And then life comes too late We'll know that nothing's the matter And we'll be funny and free And we'll know all things are matters of motion And move through this blue world just like you and me If I'm off to the city, it's greenbacks to spend 
But if I'm off dreaming, it's free If life were a long song, nobody'd want to sing along But if I'd go waltzing, would you waltz with me? I'll go back to the green fields of Lancaster Following the green exit sign But if you can find a tall enough building You'll see all the way from your window to mine She's Peruvian. Yeah. She's uh, Amazon Peruvian. Indian. Oh, she really? She climbs trees and pulls coconuts out with her fucking toes. <laughs> She's really good. Really? Yeah, but she hates me. He hates to hear me say those things. But. Well, my wife, I, I often say she's semi-feral. Uh, mm-hmm. Same kind of thing, because Cassie grew up in Africa, like uh, out in the bush, and there's sort of a similar vibe. Did you meet your wife in Portugal? We're recording, no, by Peru. the way. I turned okay. up. I'm no, sorry, I in Peru. Wife, in I Peru. Yeah. Chapa, I was first couple of years i just went down to peru to explore to see what's going on what years are these this is 84 okay and i went down with two friends and they agreed we have to go with you to save your ass but we're going with you if you go to the mountains if you go to Waraz, if you go do the inca trail and all that stuff and i'm like right. man i've hiked enough i hate hiking it made me carry 80 pounds up and down hills to fifteen thousand feet yeah i hate that yeah. so i did it anyway and then they in turn had to come with me to the jungle so went to the jungle and i was so fed up with what i thought were smarmy little um tour guides hey gringo gringo tour guide tour guide they meet you at the bus they meet you at the airport they meet you everywhere you know yeah. i was like shut up with these guys so in the key just meet a guy named boises and i'm like pushing him away i'm pushing this guy away and i said look we don't need this guy, Larry, Chuck. You know, we we just get a boat. We go out to the frickin' jungle, and we'll go. Somebody there will take us out. Yeah. And so we caught a boat, went up to a place from Iquitos to Ricana. At the time, a small town called Ricana, and it was about 250, 300 kilometers. At that time, it was a 19, 20 hour boat ride. Now it's six, 15 hours mm. because they're putting bigger engines on. Same flat bottom river boats, but instead of using a 550, they're using twin 550s. Mm. Um, and um, we get up to Regina and we look around. Nobody, everybody followed us around. I mean, when I say everybody, I mean 200 people followed us because they just there were not very many gringos there. Yeah. And I learned the secret of how to make how to make a macaw or a parrot be very colorful. Yeah. We just feed them butter. If you feed a parrot butter, its wings will turn purple, red, orange, green, yellow. What? Of really? course, it'll die younger Oh. because the butter will kill it, but it'll turn these beautiful colors. Like how quickly? Two weeks. Wow. Huh. The same as if you don't feed shrimp to, um, uh, what do you call it, the... Um, okay, I'm going to draw a blank. It's something you feed to the shrimp or you well, feed no, shrimp you, to... No, you feed the shrimp to... The beautiful, um, the pink bird, flamingos. The flamingos, right. If you don't oh, feed them that's shrimp, right. that's they're white. They get the color. And that's so, right. So when years ago, New York ordered a dozen of them for for its um, you know refurbished Central Park um, Zoo, and they went white. And New York tried to return them. <laughs> <laughs> and 
people in Miami said, what are you feeding them? I said, you know, well, we're feeding them, you know, like cornmeal. And they said, idiots. If you want pink flamingos, you feed them shrimp. Oh, if you don't, you don't have pink shrimp. And so there's a lot of this stuff that goes on. And so, you know, I turned out Moises. We go out to the jungle. Nobody would take us out. They were terrified of tunchies, ghosts. They were terrified of jaguars. And they were especially terrified of the Matzes Mayaruna Indians. At the time, everybody called them Mayaruna. Now everybody's calling them Matzes. But at the time, it was Mayaruna. Same and they are divided among how they call themselves. Right. Uh, anthropologically, they're called Mayaruna, but that includes subgroups, Matzes, Matis, Matsis, Marubo, you know. So, but even some of the Matzes call themselves Mayaruna hmm. and say, oh, we are the good Mayaruna. Right. They're Matzes, they're bad, they're cannibals. You know, yeah. we hate them. everybody else is always a cannibal. Everybody else is bad, right? Yeah. Exactly. We're the people. Yeah. Right. Um, so it we spent eleven days out there. When we realized no one would take us out to the jungle because they were so afraid, we were like, "Let's go home." But the water was so low in August, there were no boats coming back, and mm. it took us eleven days. Every day we'd go to the port. And every day they'd be like, yeah, boat come by, boat come by. No boats were coming by. The water was too low, you know. And so on maybe the 10th day a boat came by and we grabbed it. We come back. Who's waiting at port but this smarmy little short guy, Moises? And he is in a photo over there, the guy with the T-shirt on the very right of a photo mm-hmm. with my friend Pablo, a Matzes Indian, and several of his wives. And um, he said, now are you ready to go to the jungle? And I turned to him and said, I've already been to the jungle. He said, no, you weren't. Nobody took you out to the jungle in Rakena. And that's as far as you got because that's as far as the boats are going this time of year. Right. And nobody would take you out to the jungle. Yeah. So are you ready to go? And I said, all right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah. He said, oh, wait, you have boots? I said, no. He said, well, then I'm t- taking you to the jungle. Sorry. Were you wearing sandals or something? No, just sneaks. Yeah. He said, no, I won't take you to the jungle because we've got spine trees out there. Yeah. They're going to go right through the sneakers, and then you're crippled, and i got to carry you. Right. I'm not carrying you. And uh, So this smarmy little guy that I turned down turns me down mm-hmm. <laughs> after I begrudgingly accepted him. Yeah. Ten that night on my door. Got your boots? No. Yeah. It was the police. Uh-oh. Don't come out. Don't come out. Now, Chuck and Larry, for the whole trip, took a room together. They weren't lovers or anything. They just, they, we would have taken a room together, but I was trying to write articles for a paper in New York. Mm-hmm. So I needed alone space so I could write every right. day what happened down. Right. So I was writing every week one article for this guy. Jim Rensenbrink in New York City for the Aquarium, uh, Aquarium uh, newspaper. And... Uh, was 75 bucks a week, but it was like, oh, this is going to be all right. You know, eight weeks, I'm 75. Right. 500 bucks paid it back out of 2000. And um, so I had a loan room, and they don't come out. Two minutes later, bang, 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 bang. Now you can come out, and I come out, and hear the cops dragging two bodies down to the corner, and they just push them over the edge of the, you know, bank into the river. This was during the height of the Civil War. 
Oh, with the, the Senderos. Sendero Luminoso. <laughs> so they'd shot a guy against my wall because I was at the front. So they just said, don't duck down and don't, we can, in case we miss, don't be in front of the window, just duck down. And it was so, an execution. Yeah, they killed two guys summarily. I mean, <sighs> and they, they just didn't want you to see it or to they get didn't involved. want to shoot me. Yeah. I mean, they don't want to accidentally shoot a gringo. Like, right. Don't come out and get right. shot. They didn't right. mind that I saw them and wrote uh, about it, but they just uh. didn't want. So two minutes later, I hear, I'm like, oh God, are they going to kill more people? It's like, Moises. <laughs> and this smarmy little four foot eight inch guy comes in. He's got a pair of boots. He goes, Try these on. And they were ten and a half wide. And they were like, you, Emma Effa, you are a little magic man. Hate you. Hate you. Now I'm stuck going out with you and paying you. Yeah. And anyway, we went out for a few days. He introduced us to ayahuasca, which none of us had ever heard of. And it was an astounding event for me. Hmm. Uh, he, we went up the river a couple of hours, and up the Amazon, which which in South America means we went south to go up the river because in South America the rivers run south to north. In North America they run north to south, so we're going up the river going south, which is unusual for us gringos to put our wrap our heads around. And. Two hours later, we pull over and we, we duck into, you know, walk an hour and then we find a creek and Moises barters with some people for a couple of dugout canoes and we drive for an hour. I mean, ride in dugout canoes and learn that and we spill once or twice. Passport's wet, everything's wet. He's like, well, you got to learn. Everybody's going to spill once or twice in the dugout, you know, first time in. And, um, and then he begins asking a woman, then a man, like, could he make ayahuasca, blah, blah, and they were like, ah, get out of here, get out of here, you know? And Moise like, okay, last chance. We go to a fellow named, I think his name was Alfonso, and Alfonso evidently was out in his field, but his wife said, no, he's got some ayahuasca here. Why don't you come back at seven or what, at six, seven, eight, whatever it was. I, my Spanish wasn't good, but it was like, come on back later and see. And we're like, what the hell is this stuff? You know, I mean, why are we coming back? What's so important about this? Moise like, don't worry, don't worry. You'll like this. We come back that evening. And on the way from where Moises had us make camp, which was a camp for U.S. Special Forces, who Moises was tra oh, trained for jungle warfare. So our little guide turned out to be like, wait a minute. You're a little guide, but you're actually a jungle specialist who's training U.S. Special Forces. And we're at a U.S. Special Forces camp, and I'm getting bitten by um, vampire bats, you know, at night. And, you know, it's like, not only that, man, we, we're putting out 30 snakes every night. You know, we have this whole place lined with yeah. the most poisonous, horrible things because these special forces need to know and need to learn and need uh, to right, be quick. right. And so we walk from there to this guy Alfonso's place. And I'm 45 minutes, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. And you've got to cross. The jungle looks flat when you cross it on top. Any jungle will. But in fact, it's the land has been cut by a million rivulets. So it's mm. actually a series of hills oh. with a stream at the bottom of each hill. Yeah. And so you climb up a hill. Reach the top, climb down a hill, reach a stream, 
cut a tree or someone has already made a bridge, walk across the stream, and then climb up the next hill, walk across, and then down. So it's up and down and up and down and across. Mm. So it was difficult to navigate some of these bridges because they didn't have guidelines. They didn't, nobody had, you know, I mean, the locals just walk across, you know, it's a seven-inch round piece of wood wet often it's wet and you know the bark is falling off as you walk on it but for them it's no big deal it's kind of trotting across it for a gringo like me it's like you know i'm walking heavily and i'm slipping i'm sliding and they're barefoot probably they're barefoot i'm I'm wearing wearing boots boots yeah it makes it harder you know so we drink this and alphonse sits there he's heavy set middle-aged fellow I mean, at the time, I was probably 33, 34. So I thought he was heavy set. Now I'm his age. I'm thinking I'm losing weight. And he's thinking, if he's somewhere, like, looking down at me saying, now you're the fat fucker, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Was he, was Alfonso a shaman, would you say? Uh, I, he was a cordillero. Right. They didn't think of themselves as shaman. We, a shaman is a term that we put on people as if that makes them special. Mm-hmm. In fact, on every river, there had to be somebody who knew the plants to keep the people on that river healthy. Mm. And that was the Cordendero. Right. Now, if you go back 90 years from, at that point, just go back 90 years to from 1984 down to 1894, we're talking about the beginning of the rubber boom in Peru. Mm-hmm. The very, very beginning, which is when... Europeans come in as far as Iquitos and begin to entice, invite, and enslave the indigenous to work rubber trees. And those indigenous all lived in their own worlds. They had their own roundhouses, you know, their own malocas, their own um, lifestyle. Now, it might look similar to us from the outside, but they were all individual on the inside. But once those started to get approached and attacked, that lifestyle, except for the very remote people, really disappeared. And 80 years later, you had, instead of a cordendero for every village, every roundhouse would have somebody who knew all the plants or two people who knew all the plants. So your kid's got a headache. Well, I could take this leaf and this leaf, grind them up together, rub them roughly into his temples, actually break the skin of the temple, but that will lower the temperature, mm. you know, in, because that's passing the blood-brain barrier right by the blood, right by the brain, and that will lower his kid's temperature. Or I will take this frog sweat, this sapo, burn it into the kid's skin, and that will break the grippe. And the grippe at that time would still kill people. Yeah. Mm us we call it the flu and if you get a flu you know you get it really badly and yes i'm sorry but you know some kids even in new york city with all the protections medicine in the world still die from the flu but the indigenous had no protection yeah you know from that so something like the frog sweat inoculation now sapo and cambo which you familiar with the word yeah uh everybody is these days um would break that sweat. Be the same as if you were an old Irish person and said, well, take cloves and uh, cinnamon and boil up some red wine. 
drink that yeah. you sweat immediately and right. you, you get better right. so this was there but um so who had been the cordendero for a village now became the cordendero for a river they were no longer indigenous they were now mixed Yes, an Irish guy came in and had sex with somebody or a German soldier of fortune came in or an African slave came in. You know, there was, there was mixed blood now. Yeah. And it was an awful lot of Chinese blood because the Chinese came in to build the railroads up in Cusco. Oh, really? And by Lima. Right. And then they, a lot of them drifted down to the jungle. Huh. And there still is a huge presence of, of Chinese down in the jungle in Iquitos uh, and other areas of the jungle. Interesting. Not so many... The Young family and the Akui family and a few other families in Iquitos are huge. I mean, 40, 50 people in each. But what you see is that every person has got a little bit of the eyes of mm. the Chinese. In other words, there's still an infusion there. But you also see some green eyes. You see some blue eyes among very dark-skinned people. Like, you mm. know, like my wife is beautiful chocolate, mm. almond eyes, black hair. And then she has a daughter with blue eyes. Right. Like, what the heck? Where, where did this come from? Well, Grandpa was German, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it showed up second generation, you know? I wonder if there's any infusion of any Chinese medical knowledge into indigenous cultures. There might be, It'd but... Be very hard to trace, but what an interesting no, story. No, there's, there's tons of medical knowledge, but without having the identical plants hmm. it's very difficult to have the same medicines yeah okay so the chinese in iquitos and in lima still import hmm. their materials to make right. their stuff right. iquitos and peru have thousands of medicinal plants now i've always thought i go to the market in belen now, Berlin is a market that is the largest market. If you go north to south, there is no larger market in all of South America. Hmm. If you go east to west, you have to go 1,500 miles to Manaus to reach a market that's as big. In other words, the Berlin market is where nearly everything coming in from the jungle or going out to the jungle passes. Whether it's baby clothes Diapers, pampers, batteries, cartridges, shotguns, food. It's going through Milan at some point. That's changed a little bit with the opening of uh, Porta Masusa 15 years ago or so. But still, it's fair to say an awful lot of stuff comes through Belen. And it's, a, it's the Casbah of Peru. Mm. It's, and if you've been you know, to Marrakesh or you've been to the Casbah, mm. you're like, Wow, this is as cool as they said it was. Berlin is as cool as I would say it is. Mm. And if you go to Medicine Alley, you know they'll sell you anything from from ayahuasca to yopo to you know a million cures. But I've always what I found fascinating was that somebody like my mother-in-law wants to put away bad spirits. She's having bad luck. She'll buy certain flowers and put them, you know, in a in a bowl or in a vase or however she does them, 
hang them from you know a, a vine uh, in her house and to her that wards off the evil spirits somebody else who comes from a different background goes to the same cellar and buys seven different flowers to ward off the evil spirit or to bring money or to bring love or mm. to settle arguments among family or whatever, you know, there's a million things you're going to use flowers for. And I always thought, you know, darn, I wish I was a real anthropologist. I wish I was a real botanist because I know, looking at my mother-in-law, the only place those flowers grow are on a river called the Ampayaco that's near Iquitos. I mean, it's, you know, it's nine hours away by regular boat, so it's not close. But then you go up the Ampayaco and you've got Bora and you've got, but they're not traditional to that river. But you've got Huitoto and you've got Orejon. Orejon are the ones with the big ears, mm. you know, the huge ear thing. But the Orejon are using the flowers my mother-in-law used because that's where they grow. So when she goes to pick up flowers, I know, Ma, I call you an Indian, and she'd be like, I'm not Indian. My mother wore shoes. <laughs> and like, only Indians, only indigenous would say that <laughs> to prove we're sophisticated. <laughs> we wear shoes here. Uh. And I laugh and say, that proves it. She'd be like, get up. She'd pick up a broom and start whacking me, you know? But she was a whacker. Um, uh, but I knew she was an Arayhan because of the flowers she used right, because that's the only right. place those flowers grew it's surprising you'd think oh every river's got the same plants no they don't hmm. you got a plant here Unirigato common plant cat's claw fabulous for boosting your immune system um, it's used now as an magic medicine and gosh darn nearly every AIDS and cancer hospital in the states as a adjunct please get yourself some of this you know you get 50 points white t-cells every day mm. you're down to 200 you'll be at 700 in a week mm. and then you'll ward off colds and you won't die but the unidigato on ukayali is growing only above water it's never submerged go to the avari the unidigato is submerged five months a year hmm so it's a different species. Right. It had to adapt. So it's got different qualities. And so somebody coming from the Avari, the border of Brazil and Peru, would never buy Uri de Gato at the market from the Ucayali. Because to them it would be like, whoa, that's weird. Mm. I like that one. Right. And so to watch my mother-in-law and my father-in-law different. My father-in-law also Peruvian. But with a grandfather, with a father who was German, he always laughed at my mother-in-law and said, ah, that's not going to stave anything. Bad vibes are still going to come. You have to buy these. Because his mother was different. Hmm. She came from a different river, and they had different flowers. Right. And it's always surprised me because, you know, here in Texas, we got, heck, Texas is almost the same, well, probably two-thirds the area of all of Peru or half the area anyway 
But everywhere in the state, we've got blue bonnets. We've got, right. you know, yeah. uh, a million types. And we, we've got the sunflowers. And mm-hmm. we've got, you know, you're like, but if you really look closely, it's like, no. Where we are, right here in Joshua, we have three kinds of sunflowers. We've got very tiny ones, very large ones, and a couple of mediums. But if you go to Amarillo, where it's drier, they've got large, super large, and double-double super large. Mm. They don't have the wet ones, the little tiny ones that burst, and they're so wet, they're like, under their own weight, they're almost collapsing. Mm. But in Peru, you notice that more if you're, if right. you're paying attention. Right. And so to me, that was always a fascinating please, will somebody just give me an anthropology student who's a botanist? <laughs> and we can figure right. out the identity of every freaking person here who no longer knows oh, based what upon kind of indigenous the, the they are, they based use. on what kind right. of flowers they're buying right. to ward off or right. to bring love or to bring money. Interesting. Have you met Wade Davis? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I imagine oh, your, is, your paths would cross. I call Wade Davis 15, 25 years ago. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he did Serpent in the Rainbow, was his first book, which yeah. he's slightly embarrassed about. But still. It did really well. They made a movie. No, not just did well. I mean, he's slightly embarrassed because of the movie. Oh, okay. You right. know? But Wade Davis ended up in South America and ended up having to walk through the jungle. They glamorized it a little bit, you know, in the movie, and he was kind of embarrassed about that. Wade Davis is the walking Marlboro man. Hmm. This Emma Effa <laughs> comes to High Times to meet me for an interview. Oh, you you were writing for High Times? I was the editor in chief of High Times. Oh, for a while. here we go. All right. I didn't know that. I did 16 years at High Times as uh-huh. senior editor, executive editor, Sweet. which was the best, and seven months as editor in chief. I had a I had a column in Canyomo magazine, which is the Spanish sort of, yeah. you know, wannabe high, high high times. Yeah, I went to Chile and worked with Canyomo when they opened Canyomo in Chile. Ah, okay, which is totally right. against the law. Right. But two lawyers and a psychologist opened Canyomo down in Chile. Yeah, and I served them frog sweat, and they interviewed me. And my Spanish is awful, but it was it was for a period all over. The early internet, like nice. 98, 99 or something. Nice. Um, hey, b- back to Wade Davis. But so Wade Davis him, walks right? down to high times. He's got hair that's thicker than a Marlboro's man's, but it, it's flowing from his head, <laughs> just touching the collar. He's annoyingly good looking. But the collar <laughs> is the collar of a duster. <laughs> it's a 45-pound, three-inch thick leather coat. <laughs> that has been beaten to death with uh, sledgehammers so that every move it makes is the equivalent of a Cadillac seat walking down the street. And I mean an old-time Cadillac seat. It's like he's a walking goddamn Cadillac and he's good-looking. Yeah. Somebody shoot the motherfucker. That's it. Just you know, punch him in the face. Harvard Do, degree. Do something. Yeah. He's six foot four. Yeah. He's 238 pounds. He's from freaking Harvard. He owns... A fishing lodge. He's written twelve books that have been the New York Times yeah. bestsellers. Yeah. They make movies about him, and he's smart. Yeah, and he's, he's a nice guy. He's not bluffing. He's yeah. real. The real deal. 
I love and I hate him. <laughs> I know, I love and I hate him. Because yeah, I, I, I have never, the same relationship. With I will him. never be Wade Davis. No. No, no. If I were a duster that he wore, I, I would fall down. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just like it weighs too much. Exactly. But he wore it, was a quarter of an inch from the yeah. ground. It was like if you put on a different pair of shoes, that thing is scraping the ground. He's like, I didn't put on a different pair of shoes, did I? <laughs> I put on the right pair of shoes. Yeah. Some people you, just have that. I have a different duster for yeah. sneakers. <laughs> you know? Well, you can't have too many dusters. You, how many cows are you going to kill? They were dead already. It's just how we beat them to make them look smooth. Walking down the street. Yeah. What a brilliant man. Yeah. What a brilliant man. One River, is, I, I really enjoyed that. His work with Tim Plowman. No. I had gone to see Schultes. Mm. Oh. I, I loved Rich Schultes my whole life. Mm. Uh, or since I learned about him, yeah. you know, which probably was 20 years old, um, taking anthropology courses at Hunter College. So you're from New York originally? I'm from New York. Okay. I'm from Queens, New York, and Whitestone. And you, so you, Shout you, out. Were you and s- I moved <laughs> to Manhattan, uh-huh. uh, freshman year of college, just before I was 19. Uh-huh. Uh, got a four-room apartment on East 76th Street, 76th between 1st and 2nd. Um, was a cold water flat, bathtub in the kitchen. The toilet was just a toilet in the room. There's no sink there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Philip Blumenau and I moved in there. Philip now uh, has his own lab at MIT mm-hmm. Aerospace. Brilliant guy. <coughs> Excuse me. And we had a wonderful time, wonderful time. Um um, this is when uh, this is 1969. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Um, wow, and we paid forty-five dollars a month for that. Yeah, between us, and we worked at art galleries, and we drove taxi cabs, and we worked restaurants. I mean, we worked a, a gallery called Multiples Art Gallery. Uh, I got, and that was one where I got the job, and then. A year later, I brought Philip in, but Multiples Art Galleries was one of three that were using lithographs mm. and seriographs and um, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, when you push the paint across the thing. Um, yeah, I don't really know. But, um, um, so it's another way of reproducing art? Yeah, when you, yeah. When you take art and you cut it out and you, you scrape paint across it yeah. and then you put in a new yeah, anyway know. I'll think of it in a second yeah. but anyway so we worked with Robert Indiana we worked with Robert Rauschenberg we worked with um, Warhol Arakawa Warhol and so my job included setting up the gallery and putting up the new I mean they tell me where but my job was put up all the new images and then sell during the day, like pull out from the drawer, you know, number one, eight, number 18 out of 100. And so you'd, a Warhol Flowers might start at $150 signed. But if there were 150 copies of that, by the time you got to 100, that was $8,000. Hmm. By the time you got to 140, it was $14,000. You know what I mean? Because there were like, very few left. Yeah. yeah, and that's, yeah. you know, of course, now they're worth a million dollars if you got the originals. Yeah. But uh, I later ended up working at the gallery that produced that stuff. 
I, I worked for for a fella who uh, was called the Impossible Man, and he produced the plastics that people like Robert Rauschenberg were producing. Um, uh, beautiful plastic. Um, it's not plastic. What do you call it? The um, polymer mm. art. And Marisol would have a. She would carve a piece of wood, and it would be a fish eating a fish eating a fish. Mm. And then our job was to turn that into a plastic sculpture with a hundred different colors so that people who were architects might say, this will look great in your office, $25,000. Mm. Know, and she'll sign each one. And so when I worked for Bassanow at, at the Impossible Man's place, we were producing that. And he would say, like, 10 of us, okay, come up with a new color for Marisol's you know, fish. I remember Marisol's fish because the color they used was my color. And mm. I came up with the right color. I mean, I, I missed on another 199, you know what I mean? <laughs> the one I remember was Marisol's Free fish. Them. And it was okay. a blue-green yeah. that looked so oceanic that it yeah. looked like the fish were really eating the fish. And the third face on the fish was Nixon. So Nixon <laughs> was eating the other fish. It wasn't quite Nixon. It wasn't yeah. quite that political, but it was close. Yeah. Close. Um, um, and then I worked for a place called chrysalis gallery where we were doing the art and we were pulling the paint you know and so we're making the oldenburgs the rauschenbergs mm. the warhols and i pulled the marilyns i pulled the mouths mm. i mean i'm the one if you see a warhol with a mouth yeah i'm the one who did the silk screen. really wow the artist warhol drops the image sure the artist cut the screen and the screen is just for the yellow. And then they give me a squeegee and yellow paint, and I spread it over there. Right. And I take the squeegee, and I had very steady hands, which is why they like me. And I would scrape that down to the bottom once. Don't screw it up. Mm. And I pull that sheet out. Next one. Until you got all 150 or 250 done. Does each one have to dry before you do yes. the next Yes, and thing? then the artist whoever's copying Warhol has cut out the red. Mm. And so now you scrape the red, the same pictures go in there dry, mm. yeah. and you scrape the red. Yeah. Now, the thing was that I always knew there's 10 artist proof, which the artist gets to sell, you know, and they're not numbered, and there is, you want this on tape or not? Yes. Madalena? <laughs> Any chance you could open a 337 for me? Thank you, Don. Um, so the artist gets 10. Are, are, you, are you about to, to admit Indiana, to a crime here? Robert Indiana, famous for L-O-V-E. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. And the first time I went to Robert Indiana's studio with L-O-V-E poster, you know, that was silkscreen, uh-huh. And it was, it's going to be $125 each. Remember, we're talking about 70 Yeah, that, that was... He's going to make $80 off that. Mm. And they're going to make 200 of them. And he's like, 80 times 200 yeah. I'm making 1600 I've got a loft that's 4,000 square feet that costs 200 a month. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's to him, money. it was like relatively yeah. rich. Yeah. I walked in and Robert Indiana had a studio that was amazing. There was beautiful art everywhere. And there were totem poles. And they were 24 feet tall in the studio. 
I mean, in this loft. It's in Soho? No, no, it was Brooklyn. Yeah. It was the Brooklyn Pier. They had closed the Brooklyn Pier, and he had taken down the pier posts. Oh, shit. And carved beautiful uh, totem poles wow. out of them. And I was, like, blown away. Yeah. Like, what are you doing this stupid little L-O-V-E? <laughs> and number one, two, three, four, five, yeah. six, seven, yeah. which I still have in my office out there. I still got a couple of his numbers, mm. you know, signed. And like, what are you doing this for? It's like, this pays the rent. Mm. When I get rich, I will sell the totem poles because mm. that's what I love to do. But <laughs> nobody wants my damn totem poles. I'm like, but it's such, and he's like, Okay, I'm gay. You want a blowjob? Like, no, I just want to talk about the totem poles. You know? Speaking of totem poles. Look, I was a cute 19-year-old kid, you know what I mean? I had long curly hair. I wore a raccoon jacket, you know, fake raccoon. Everybody thought I was gay. I probably was. I just didn't know. But still. So I'm bringing, I'm bringing Andy Warhol stuff to uh, 89th Street and uh, Lexington Avenue yeah. to his place there. You know, and I'm, Joe D'Alessandro is meeting me downstairs. Joe D'Alessandro, like the weirdest guy in the world, uh, like one of Andy's stars. And he's mm -hmm. like, I will take it to Andy now. I, I got to deliver this to Andy. You don't meet Andy. <laughs> like, yeah. Hello, boss. I'm going to the corner. Uh, I got the tube. Can I deliver this to Joe D'Alessandro? Do you know Joe D'Alessandro? I do now. Oh, God. Miriam, you know, just forget your infatuation with Joe D'Alessandro and his muscles. Would you, you know, can I deliver this or yeah, not? You yeah. know? So it was a great job. Then I got bored. And I'm at Chrysler's Gallery. And we finished a whole bunch of Oldenburgs. If you're, Oldenburg's the fellow who does the soft sculpture. Mm -hmm. He's out of the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. He'll do like a, uh, an image of a fire hydrant melting so it's like mm. bent over mm. uh he'll do wonderful um and steinberg was another one who would do these weird stuff but it was beautiful and uh having worked at multiples gallery for several years three four years during college so you then, were at hunter at this time yeah, yeah. while you're doing that? Yeah, wow. yeah so and then it was just yeah. what i was how to, how to pay the, the rent. rent i mean yeah. i was a kid yeah. i you know my mother and father like glad you're on your own yeah good you're luck. on your own you know <laughs> You want yeah. to eat, eat. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Buy food. Uh, yeah. There was no, you know, there was no leeway there. Yeah, I, I'm sure they lent me twenty bucks, fifty bucks now and then, but it was very not frequent. Yeah. Um, Were you studying anthropology at that time? No, I was studying theater. My oh. father was a Broadway actor. Oh, all right. Yeah, a Shakespearean actor, but he did seven Broadway shows, hmm. and uh, he was a joke writer before that for Arthur Godfrey. Hmm. Um, when Arthur Godfrey was at the top of his game. And uh, a few of the other guys who were pretty big shots. My mother was a Broadway actress. She invented what we could now call Brooklynese, these damn does. Really? And she had her own show. They invented her own show for Madeline Gorman. And Madeline Gilhooley is what she went under. Um, and so she's credited with what we call Brooklynese, yeah. these damn does. And did she grow up in Brooklyn? No. She grew <laughs> up in uh, Larchmont ah, and okay. moved to Manhattan when she was 19. And, uh. A beautiful woman, but we were always skeptical because oh. she was a body model for the New York Times for um, lingerie. Oh. But she was not a face model. 
Right. No, they didn't yeah. like her face. I liked her face. Well, yeah. she's. I'm looking at a photo. She's beautiful. Yeah, for I sure. Mean, this is like eight years before they both died. You know what I mean? Like, oh, really? Oh, well, oh. they're, they're they, they look, younger than me. They but, look I mean, healthy. Really huh? good looking couple. Yeah, and, uh, and good sense. They look like they have uh, a lot of sense of humor. Were they funny? Oh, well, your dad was writing jokes. Obviously, he was they, funny. They, 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 yeah. they understood that life was complicated. Right. And they didn't take it. They patted each other on the fanny a lot. Good. And then my father would sit down on the piano and go like, do do You know, better be down the bar. Honey, better be down the bar. Quarter past eight. Mom would come in and swing around. He'd be like, don't look, kids. Mom would Mom would serve dinner and be like, oh, I have a migraine. You have to go up. And she'd go up. My dad would wait 15 minutes and say, kids, don't move from this table. <laughs> I'm going up to see if your mom is all right. I'm going to treat that migraine. She doesn't migraine. need any pain. <laughs> and about 20 minutes later, he'd come down, pulling up his zipper, going, I think your mom is getting better. <laughs> and mom would come down 10 minutes later, like, it vanished. It vanished. <laughs> Wow, so, that's great. Yeah, they, considering that they would never talk. I mean, my father's talk to me about sex was, so you understand? Yeah, good, good. <laughs> yeah, Dad, I understand. I it solves what? migraines. Yeah, that's I mean, what I understand. Is, I've never admitted this in tape before, but here's the deal. <laughs> I ended up with a beautiful woman named Daryl as a freshman in college, yeah. and I've written about this, but I never said it out loud. So. I thought I had a chance of getting laid. I'd never been, but I'd, I'd already felt her up once in a car, and the police had busted us yeah. on the street saying, like, it's snowing, it, the car is on, are you dead, or what's going on in there? <laughs> we're putting back our you know, blouses on and stuff. And I'm like, we're fine, we're fine. Like, yeah. he's not assaulting you, is he? She's like, oh, shut up, you just interrupted things. So a week later, a friend of mine, Naomi, says, in freshman college, I got an apartment on uh, 78th Street in Amsterdam. You can go there. I'll leave a key. And then I'm going to be out of town the weekend. So take the apartment for a night. Hmm. Cool. Mm. So I buy Chinese food. I invite Daryl. And we go to the apartment. The mailbox key doesn't work. So I can't get to the key. Uh and I'm not giving up this chance. This was one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen. And my high school sweetheart was Catholic, so we, we never even barely got to first base. <clears throat> I've already been in trouble with the police with this woman for second base. So, you know, I thought we might get to third base at least. So we waited in the, uh, it was a large apartment building. We waited for, uh, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, somebody came in and let us come in with a, Naomi said we can go inside, but we can't get the key. And we, ah, come in. We go inside. We get up to her floor. We look under the mat. There's no key. There's no way. Oh, shit. But it had what they call a transom in New York City, yeah. which was old buildings, which had no air conditioning, would have a window above the door. Mm. And the window was meant to be opened to allow air to come in and out. So you'd open your own windows, 
it wouldn't help much. But if you opened the transom above the door, it was a, a window that spun. It would allow some cool air to flow through. So I said, Naomi, give me a boost. Naomi gave me, I mean, uh, Daryl gave me a boost. I went up there. I pushed that in, opened the transom, slid through because I was thin, fell down, opened the door, go inside. We made love. It was like the most unbelievable, like, holy mackerel. That's what happens? Mm. Remember, I was a Catholic. I'd never masturbated, so I had no idea. Wow. So when it happened, it was like. You had wet dreams by that point, hadn't you? Yeah, but I didn't know I could do it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was like, I could do this myself. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Wow. I, it never occurred to me. So it was 18, it got late. 19, yeah. I masturbated. Yeah. And um, <laughs> of course, the police came. Police came? Because oh, someone saw you going through the window. No. Oh. The roommate that we didn't know about oh. came and heard voices call the police. And so the police come, and they knock on the door, and we put our clothes, and we just finished. And I had just washed out the condom, because I thought, we could do this again. (laughs) He got the reusable kind, huh? (laughs) I didn't know. My friend Bruno had given it to me when I was like 16. I didn't know what it was for until that night, and suddenly realized, that's what this is for. Yeah. And this is totally embarrassing. I mean, go ahead and publish it, but what the oh, hell? Oh, it's great. I... No, uh, the cops come in, and they're like, what are you doing here? We're like, getting laid. He's like, getting laid. I said, well, no, Naomi said we can come in, and her roommate says, Naomi didn't tell me about that. I said, I didn't even know she had a roommate. I'm sorry. I, you know, blah, blah. We only used her room. We didn't use her room. What are you doing? I said, look, there's Chinese food on the floor. I didn't rape anybody. I'm bringing anybody. I mean, we're eating Chinese food. Made a love. Just then, their cat, which I didn't know they had, comes out from the bathroom with a condom in his teeth <laughs> and drops it on one of the police officer's feet. <laughs> and he said, pick that up. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, sorry. And I knew it had holes in it, so I was like oh, no. doomed for the night. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't have it a second one. I'd be carrying that around. And you never heard of blowjobs, probably. No. <laughs> probably heard of it, but I had no idea I, I would get one. Yeah. I'm, I'm 67 now, I'm still waiting. And uh, <laughs> the cops decide, like, okay, we're not yeah. going to arrest you. Pick up the goddamn Chinese food, make the bed, and get the fuck out of here. And as we're walking out, the second cop, not the one who's got the condom on his foot, he punches me in the arm, like with his elbow. I'm turning and he says, you're fucking 19 years old. Bring two condoms. <laughs> <laughs> you don't reuse them. That's some good advice right there. And I went out to the park bench with her. We went out to Central Park. It was snowing. I started kissing with her and she said, the mood is all broken. Oh, no. It's all over. And I never was allowed to touch her again. What? In the history of my life. Oh, it was like, man. you're a notch on my belt. I got my virgin. You know? Mm. I mean, it was so bad what I was doing that I had to tell well, her she, about She knew. Oh, no, you, about you 20 minutes her. into right, it, I said, right. I never did this before. Yeah, yeah. At which point she said, you're a virgin. I said, I, I, I never done any of this before. Yeah. She said, oh, my God. And she had the greatest time of the world. Oh, good. Beating the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't give me No, no, it was like I got my virgin. She said, I've been yeah. waiting for a virgin since I was 14, uh, 13. Uh, you know, when I got 
my first. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's rough. So, so you're at Hunter. I mean, this, here's a segue. <laughs> so, you're you're you lost your virginity. You're at Hunter College, and that's when you first heard about Richard Evan Schultes. And I had no reason to contact Schultes. And I just thought this fellow is serious. He's not. He's not gonna like probably a thousand people. I mean, I was a yeah writer at that time. Not maybe not much of a journalist, but writer. Uh-huh. It was like, my father gets scripts from people. He doesn't read all these scripts. They're like, would you do this off-off-Broadway show for no money? It's like, yeah, I've got to pay the rent. i got yeah. six kids. Yeah. I, I can't read all these scripts. You know, and, and so I thought Schultz was the same. But then Wasson died. Now, Wasson was a fellow that Schultz, he had gone to Schultz when Schultz had studied peyote. And then Schultz had found himself down near Oaxaca, he had never met Maria Sabina, but he he knew about her, and she had what at that time they called a cult. It wasn't a cult, but um, using magic mushrooms, you know, in the same way that people in the Southwest were using peyote yeah. as a sacred medicine, and a banker named Wasson. Uh, an international banker and probably a spy and all the, you know, anything negative you want. But well, his wife was Russian, side, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, his wife was Russian. Yeah. And she was a, a mushroom they, expert. When Wasson got married, they went up to the Catskills for their honeymoon. And on the first night in the Catskills, his wife went out and collected a huge basket of mushrooms mm. and started cooking with them. And Wasson was sure, you're going to poison me. Because yeah. mushrooms are bad. Yeah. Typical American. And it turned out, they not only weren't bad, they weren't hallucinogenic, they were just beautiful, wonderful food. And so Wasson got interested in mushrooms. And then he heard the story of a woman in, South, in, in Mexico um, who was using a type of mushrooms that would bring on a trance that would allow you to see other elements in the universe. Now, strange for a guy who's an international, you know, bank consultant, but he was so curious that he went to the only person he could think of, or he might have gone to 20 others that we don't know about, Mm -hmm. but he wound up talking to Richard Schultes at Harvard who had done all the work for the United States during World War II. Schultes had gone down there as a graduate student, and he was in Columbia, and he was working with rubber trees. And he got a call to come to uh, Bogota to meet at the embassy, and he was like, huh? And he went to the embassy, and they said, look, uh, we need rubber for the war. So collect as many types of rubber as you can so that we can establish rubber farms he ended up collecting more than 2800 tops of rubber about I, I think I want to say and if I'm wrong forgive me I want to say almost 200 of those are commercial mm. potentially commercial but like Henry Ford who only used one type of rubber which was vulnerable to the blight mm. it was produced the best rubber the fastest 
And Henry Ford planted millions of acres of this and in the course of two weeks lost everything in mm. South America. Mm. That rubber is now being used in Malaysia because it was smuggled out. Yeah. And if someone would throw one seed from Brazil with a blight in it into Malaysia, you would end air traffic. Yeah. You would end cars. Because all sidewalls of cars have to be made with real rubber. Right. All airplane have to be made with rubber. All well, the, the airplane tires. The cause, tires. Cause the, the temperature be, when they the land is so high. They can't go from hot to cold. Yeah. We don't have any polymers that will do that yet. Yeah. The recoil from guns, from battleships. There's something like 4,000 parts on a battleship are made from real rubber. And if somebody would just throw a seed. You would destroy in two weeks all of Malaysia's rubber. I remember this is thinking Wade that. Davis. Yeah, Wade this, Davis. Wade Davis went ahead and did the math on this. Yeah. And he wrote a piece after he did, you know, One River. Then Forbes hired him to say, like, give us a story just on the rubber. And I was like, holy mackerel. You know, and Schultes had planted in Costa Rica 184 different types of rubber. And after the war, the government said, we're not funding it anymore. Right. It's gone. And when I'm at Schultes, I, I finally called Schultes about Wasson. I said, it's the anniversary of Wasson's death. You're the one, when Wasson came to you, you said, I'm not sure. But I have, someone sent me these mushroom statues. And they tell me there's a woman in Oaxaca who uses these. Wasson went down and found it. And I had a book that I bought from Schultes. It was a, Wasson's original, I had to sell it when I was broke and we we're trying to move out of Peru, which I'm really sorry about. But it, Wasson brought down on his second trip a team that included an audio guy, a video guy, uh, a translator, you know. And so he put together in a package, he had two packages. One was very select, like 95 copies, the other was 500 copies. I had one from the 500 copies, not the select. Same material, but it was done in cloth rather than leather. Um, but it was her singing on records. It was her singing translated into notes so that you could play it on the piano. It was pictures of the ceremony, of the mushroom ceremonies. And that was when the Western world first learned of magic mushrooms. Now... I'm not saying that people didn't know it before then, but it wasn't known. It didn't Wasson write about that trip right. in Life he, magazine? 1957, yeah. he, I think it was, I want to say May 57, he wrote about it called The Wild Mushroom Trip. And it was Life magazine, and it was seven or nine pages. And it almost killed his career as a banker because he's talking about tripping out. But it made his career as one of the fathers of the psychedelic movement. Now, Richard Schultz has turned him on to that. I wanted to get, and so I'm working for High Times, and I'd only begun working for High Times. I'd written a couple of stories about South America, about Peru, about Sapo. So what year are we Nunu. talking about? This 86, I wrote for High Times about ayahuasca. Oh, uh, okay. And that was the first article, national article on ayahuasca ever printed in the States. Hmm. I mean, Ginsburg and Burroughs had already done the Ahi letters. Right. But that was San Francisco Press, um, and that it printed all of 46 copies. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but the first one with Steve Hager, I love him, I hate him, my boss for a long time, brilliant at times, titled, you know, Ayahuasca, Brain Bending Drum, Brain Bending Drug of the Amazon, which I was like, that is vulgar. Yeah. That's a vulgar way to put it. But it was still the first time anybody put the word ayahuasca on a cover of a national magazine, and High Times was a national magazine. Yeah. You know? So, um, and then I'd written about Nunu, the, um, uh, a snuff, and then I'd written about Sapo, a frog mm, sweat, right. vaccination, and um, DMT. No, what was your point? Oh, oh, the, you called Schultes for that article. So, yeah. After I'd written eight or ten articles for them, maybe a year or two, Wasson had died, and I didn't know Wasson. And so I was called to the office and said, you got to write a story about Wasson. It's a year anniversary. I'm like, I really know this guy. I just didn't know anything about him. So I looked as much as I could. This is pre-internet, so I'm at the public library in the rare book room. I'm in, in the magazine room. I mean, I'm just, I'm going, going through the, what do you call it, the... Oh, the microfiche. The microfiche. Yeah, this is you before know. internet, kids. Yeah, yeah. This was hours and hours and hours of work looking through two years worth of New York Times, page by page. Yeah, yeah you couldn't do a the search. Name showed up. <laughs> yeah. hey, there was no such thing as search button. Yeah. And uh, when I had it, and I realized Schultes had turned Watson on to this, then I had a reason to call Schultes. And I wrote Schultes and said, I would like to talk about your friend Wasson. He died. It's his first anniversary. Schultes answered my letter with a quick note. Call me after you correct this. But he included my letter and he had redlined all the mistakes I'd made in my letter. Mm. I mean, he was a real teacher. He was like, mm. you know, if your tie is not tied right, I'm not talking to you. Right. You know, it was one of those guys like... You're going to really comment on my freaking letter? Yeah. I mean, he wrote you a letter. Yeah, he did you a favor. Yeah, that's that's great. And he, and he made himself available to you, and right? And I went up to that's see great. him. So you went up to Harvard. And I went, ah. and he took me around, and he took me to lunch, took me to his wife, took me to his kids. Did you see the lab? He took me to his lab. Wow. And after great. we were in the lab for about four hours... He pointed out the the Wasson compilation. He's like, you should buy one of these, really, because you use a lot of my time for free. <laughs> <laughs> and how much are they? He said, $495. Uh, I said, I'll buy one. Yeah. I was like, where the fuck? I'm getting $300 for this interview. Right. You know, including the photo. Yeah. Where, where the heck am I going to get this money? <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea. I wasn't working for High Times yet. I wasn't. I mean, I was, oh, still I was freelancing. freelancing. Oh, right. So I'm getting three hundred dollars for an interview. You know, right? Yeah, no, right. fifty dollars for a picture, and uh, I bought it and I had a great time with him. He was wonderful. That's great. Warm, crazy man, and hmm. he was talking about how angry he was at the U.S. government for cutting off the Costa Rica rubber stuff and how vulnerable we were to rubber and I, if i knew what he was talking about at the time i would have written ray davis's article 20 years earlier right i just didn't understand the import of it yeah i mean 
there's a lot of things that you... Even my work with the Mazes, or even my work with my kids, how many times have I missed what's important? Because yeah. I was looking at that, yeah. and I didn't see that. Yeah. And I was looking there, and I missed that. And so here Schultes is telling me, by cutting off the exploration that we were doing, the United States and the world is beholden to one type of rubber. Yeah. And we are not saving the other types. We're devoting too much effort to one. The others may not be quite as tough, but they do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But we need to devote more time so that we have a variety to choose from. And it's the same and mistake. And I missed, you know, I mean, I wrote yeah. that, but I didn't get it. Yeah. And so, you know, it's part of the time when, you know, I, I get on Facebook or somewhere and... <coughs> People say, "Oh, Peter, you're this, you're that," and I'm like, and inside I laugh. I'm like, mm. I would be if I'd have caught half of the stuff I've missed. Well, if you caught ten percent, you're doing well. Yeah, but I, you know, I missed a lot. I well, mean, I some. But it sounds to me like you put yourself in a position where where that information was being conveyed, right? So. <laughs> Well, I mean, who else was wandering around the jungle in Peru in 1984? You know, Terrence McKenna. Terrence McKenna was, yeah. Maybe Wade Davis was down there. I guess Andrew Weil was down there at some point. Well, I I blew the photos of Schultes. Mm. I had sun behind him, uh, and uh, I mean, I was never a great photographer, but I still have had photos in penthouse. Discovery, um, oh, details, Rolling Stone. Mm. I mean, I've had photos published everywhere, and you would be like, "Well, you must be great." It's like, no, <coughs> I'm the only guy who was there. Right. Yeah. So it may not be a great photo, but if you need a picture of these two people who had government pot just before Kenny Jenks died. I'm the only guy in the world who's got that photo. Hmm. So Details Magazine is going to give me 500 for it. Or, you know, Sports Illustrated's got a picture. Peter Gorman's been published photos in Sports Illustrated, Geo. Geo? That's the world's <laughs> best photos. Yeah. Well, except for when they needed <laughs> one photo of someone getting frog sweat yeah. for the first time ever. And the only one who had that was Peter Gorman. Right. You know? Right. So... I, you get lucky sometimes, like yeah. I say, you know, yeah. God forbid I would ever call myself a photographer. So I called Schultz and said, look, I blew the photo. Mm. I need to come up for an hour. He says, I have given you enough time. I am very old. I'm 88. I'm going to be dead. I need to do my work. I gave you my time. If you missed, you missed. can't do the interview without a photo of him and his whites in his office. I mean, and his office, he's got rows and rows. I don't know if you know what a herbarium looks like, but a herbarium is like just rows and rows of, of metal things, right. and you open up drawers and you got pressed plants in them. Yeah. And he is still of the 2,800 or so, and if I'm wrong, 
forgive me, but more or less 2,800 types of rubber, he is still got like 311 to categorize and separate and explain why they're different and where they were collected and make it real clear and write notes. And so I was like, okay, this screwed. I looked at my wife, Chapa, and Chapa is really beautiful. She turned 51 Tuesday. And she'll kill you if I say that out loud. But, um, that she's beautiful? I think she's beautiful. <laughs> and uh, if you saw her, you think, if you saw her, you think she's beautiful. She's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Just, she'd be beautiful when she's 70. Yeah. Um, just one of those. Yeah. And uh, I said, Chap, come on up. Let's rent a car. So we rented a car. And we went to Schulte's office without invitation after he told me no. And I shoved her in front of me. <laughs> I knocked at the door. And he comes to the door. Who's there? I said, uh, Peter Gorman, the reporter for High Times. I told you I don't have time for you. I gave you my time. Enough. He said, open the door. You'll be happy, I promise. Oh, you are. He opened the door. He saw her. Uh, I mean, I shoved her right in front of you. Oh, my goodness. You're a Colombian girl, and I am 19 again. <laughs> Please come in. Uh, and nice. he sat there and flirted with her for three freaking hours until his wife came in and said, Time for dinner. Yeah. And he's like, Uh, 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 we have to, um, do you want to invite? No. <laughs> uh, but we could invite. No. <laughs> His uh, wife's 70 years old. You know, she doesn't want to invite no 31-year-old beauty. Yeah. That reminds him of Colombian girl. He spent three hours looking at her saying, my dear. Yeah. My dear. Oh, my dear. <laughs> you remind me of. Because she was so beautiful. She, yeah. She's Peruvian. She's from the Amazon. She's like. Yeah. And I was clicking, clicking, clicking. Man, I must have got. 300 wonderful shots of him mm. and I've probably sold 30 of them over the years really and I got the I got the full page shot that I needed I got the hundred dollars for the shot That's and great. Chapa still to this day is like who was that guy he was kind of like <laughs> touching my knee a creepy lot. guy like he didn't grab up your knee he just grabbed from your knee down don't worry about it this I'm not I'm not offended by your knee down that's, you gotta that's, do that's what you gotta property. do man yeah, do you know Kenneth Good? Have you ever met him? No. You know who I'm talking about? He wrote a story called, or a book called Into the Heart. He studied the Yanomami, um, started with Shagnon, right. and then he switched and, and was working with Marvin Harris because he and Shagnon had a big falling out about the way Shagnon treated the Yanomami. And anyway, he fell in love with a, a native woman and brought her back to Philadelphia. I always, I've always wanted to meet him, and it didn't last long. I think she lasted five or six years in Philadelphia before she flew back to Venezuela and went back to the jungle. She didn't it's like it. It's hard yeah. for, for these women. Uh, you wouldn't understand. I mean, not you, but I mean, people wouldn't understand. In the Peruvian mindset, you know, it's, it's a female-dominated society. Hmm. Everybody else would tell you it's a male-dominated society. Baloney. Men are allowed to be peacocks. They can walk. But a man with four wives, and you say, oh, man, he's got four wives. No. That means he's feeding the children hmm. of four women. Right. And the four women. 
And if he can't feed them on a given day, he's got two or three days. But if he gets drunk three days in a row and doesn't feed them, he's going to get poison soup and they're going to walk off with their kids Mm. as a unit to find a new man. Right. And the four wives are going to be a wife that he picked, a wife that he stole, and then a couple of sisters who don't have any husbands because their husbands... If they had them, maybe they died when they because men are out there collecting, you know, out there in the woods and snake bit or whatever. So, mm-hmm. there's, and there's many more women born. I mean, I'm not buying the seven women to one man birth, but there are certainly more women born than men. Uh, Chapa is everybody's jealous of my mother-in-law because she had three sons and four daughters. Now, everybody's insane for Cheppa because she had three daughters and two sons. Hmm. It's like, no, it should be four daughters and one son. Hmm. You know, so you have an extra son. So, the, so the, there is a, a there skewed is a ratio. And it's not that the boys die the more boys often. The boys die when they're grown-ups. Right. Um, so there are more girls born than boys. Yes, but it's not the ratio that people would like to tell you. You'll often look on the Facebook or something mm. and say, "Oh, it's seven to one or eleven to one." I, I, you know, I, and this I, is what I, I'm hard pressed to to buy that. This is referring to to certain in, Amazonian in the tribes. Amazon in Northwest Amazonia, huh? But I think it's at least three to two. Hmm. Uh, now, this is going to offend people in the indigenous cultures that I have experienced if the males are treasured and the females are not because the males can hunt and the females can nurture but very few females and there are some but not very many are wonderful hunters Mm. and so if you have three females in a row or four from a same wife you might use the umbilical cord and kill the baby as it comes out. And then you would still make a nice clay pot and put the fetus in that or the brand new baby in that. And then you would put it over fire for three days and then you would eat the ashes. Mm. You know, to make sure that baby comes out next time as a male that's productive. Mm. So it's not like it's thrown away or disregarded. It's simply a question of, is this valuable to our community? The same way that if someone comes out with a bad leg, you can't have a bad leg in the jungle if you are going to be semi-nomadic. Yeah. Somebody with a bad leg, what, can he help hunt? Can he gather food? Can he... Uh, Keep up with the climb group. up the tree and yeah. get the branches to make roof sections, because if you can't do any of that, now I, I, and I understand because most people have not been in the jungle and have not been where I've been, and they would say, you know, be nice and everybody's good and everybody's fair. It's like, no, you don't understand the circumstances. In yeah. those circumstances. This all makes sense. 
It doesn't make sense to us. It does not make sense to Peter Gorman. Because if I had a baby who was sick, I would take care of it. Yeah. I have a, ba- a dog who's sick. I'd take care of it. But if I'm in the jungle and that dog is sick, you put a fucking rope around his neck and strangle him and send him on to the next life. Because right now, he's holding us back. We're trying to hunt food, and this dog's going, yip, 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 and scaring all the food away for five miles, which means nobody eats. Yeah. So, in a stark reality, which is more important, that your family eats or the dog gets to yip? Dog don't get to yip. Yeah. You know, it's like when people talk about um, the frog medicine that I use, that I happen to bring out from the jungle, Sapo, Cambo. They say, oh, the frog is tied up, and then you scrape, you know, its, its secretions, and it's torture. And I say, you're right. But you know what? The alternative is that frog gets thrown into a pot of boiling water, and we eat it. Which do you think the frog would prefer? Both are horrible. Does the frog die from the no. scraping? No. You scrape it and then you put it back in a tree. Oh. And you never touch that frog until any marks that were made by the the soga, the, the vine or rope that you put around his feet and ankles, disappear. Hmm. So you never collect it more than, you know, once a month hmm. at best. And you may never collect it more than once in his life. Hmm. Is it traumatic? Yeah. But... You know, uh, the jungle is harsh. None of the things in the jungle are nice. You know, yeah. I mean, we where we live, I mean, I've had gardens. I'm a chef. I mean, I was a chef for a long time in New York City. I know every carrot suffered <laughs> when yeah. I cut it. Yeah, Every piece of garlic I've ever <laughs> cut has said, Please don't cut me. And I say, I'm sorry. I have to eat. I'm chopping you to death. <laughs> they hate it. And they're as sentient as you are or I am. Yeah? Garlic? To me, in my world, Yeah. I can't cut a branch from a tree. I cut last night when I realized my back is so out only thing that might help set it is if I start using my axe again and start cutting some wood with an axe, maybe they'll set it. And I cut a fucking branch from a tree. And the whole thing was looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, look, you don't fit. You're tilting my tree. Mm. And I need the exercise and you're hurting the tree. Yeah. You, this you, conversation has not been anything about what you wanted to talk about. You know what? I, this The podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. All right. And this is why. Because right. I, I like to just sit down with somebody who's really interesting and intelligent and let it go where it goes. Damn, so, where are you going to find somebody like that? <laughs> <laughs> They're hard to find. They're one in a million. All right. Let's end it there. Thank you very much for doing this, man. I appreciate You're it. What a fucking character, huh? That's a guy who uh, likes to live on the edge, and he's he's been successful at it <clears throat> for a long time. Peter Gorman, check out his webpage. It's uh, pgorman.com. 
all sorts of stuff about him there. And uh, that's it. I'm not going to really say much else. I'm going to play you out with a song called Home Again. It's by Michael Kiwanuka. Just seems appropriate somehow. Home Again. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. Home again, home again One day I know I feel home again Home again, home again One day I know I feel strong again Lift my head Many times I've been told All this talk will make you whole So I'll close my eyes Look behind Moving on Moving on So I'll close my Look behind, moving on Lost again, lost again One day I know I'll pass through course again Smile again, smile again One day I hope to make you smile again So I'll close my eyes Or look behind Moving on Moving on So I'll close my eyes And the tears will clear Then I feel no fear Then I feel no way My past Close my eyes, look 